The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All and Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Ciao, cara. Today's guest is founder of the Italian lifestyle brand La Double J, and the closest I'm gonna get to Italy all 2020, JJ Martin. The Los Angeles-born, Milan-based journalist and vintage collector spent the past 16 years scoping out Italian fashion and design as a contributing editor at Harper's Bazaar and Wallpaper Magazines before launching her own brand celebrating the best of Italy. Founded in 2015, the company has expanded from a shoppable magazine selling just vintage clothing and jewelry to a full lifestyle label offering new fashion made with archival prints, cool home decor, and rare vintage. All of La Double J's creations, from its content, editorial projects, and pop-up shops, to its product design and wildly patterned showroom in Milan, are distilled through a lens of pure joy, eye-popping print, and love of all things maximal, proving that too much of a good thing is indeed divine. JJ, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It's my pleasure, and plus it gives me a chance to be in America and speaking to you on a local time zone. I know. So you are currently visiting from Italy. What a time to choose to come to the U.S. right before everything is going down. Well, this is actually, I tried to come to L.A. three times. I had three tickets booked March, May, August. Every single one obviously got canceled because of the COVID situation. And my mom lives in Los Angeles where I grew up and hasn't been doing that well. So I've been super anxious to get back. And then this trip was planned in September. And when I, you know, in the, in the week building up, I kept hearing news going South and I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I've got my ticket. I'm going. You were coming hell or high water. So what does it feel like being in the States versus coming from Italy in terms of how people are reacting culturally to everything that's going on? Well, I have to say the Italians who are not known for their speed or efficiency are remarkably efficient in the face of an emergency. And they were spectacular in terms of dealing with the major emergency that was happening, the health crisis that happened. And every single person took this so seriously. There wasn't a single person that disobeyed the rules. Everyone was inside their homes, never leaving their homes for three and a half months. The only reason I got to leave my apartment in Milan was, thank God, I have a dog. And so I was granted permission to go outside twice a day (laughs) into a park. Two times a day. Wow. So do they come and do checks? Yeah, they check you. Well, more than anything, they're patrolling the street. So if they see you out on the street, you'll get a ticket. But basically, nobody would have done that because that that was what was so shocking, you know, because when I confronted this with what was happening in America and people were like, mm, it's optional. Right. <laughs> it's optional whether I'm going to wear a mask or it's optional. And, you know, I see sort of both 
side to the coin. I myself am not a, I don't tend to have fear over my health or death at all. You know, I have many other fears, but these are not two that I harbor, thank God. So I've taken this whole thing quite calmly. And it's really been for me, I had a blessing during COVID. I mean, it was a nightmare from a business standpoint because my business was melting down. We had to close it for six weeks, put everyone on a hiatus, but we're luckily able to keep everyone on board as well. So I'm super proud of the fact that we didn't fire anyone and that we've been able to buoy ourselves back up. But I personally had a magical time during lockdown by myself in Milan. That's incredible. I think that's the thing that's so interesting. It's affected everybody in so many different ways, like just really being forced to sit with yourself. But I want to begin at the beginning because you started your life in Los Angeles and then you kind of had this fantasy of mine, which is to up and relocate and live in Italy, which is something I've always dreamed of doing. But I wonder, can you give us a little bit of background on where did you grow up? What did you want for your life? What did you dream having it all would look like? Tell us, who is JJ? So I actually never dreamt of moving to Italy. My dream was to go to Paris or to work in fashion. So I grew up in the world's sportiest family you could ever imagine. I had two older brothers, and both my mother and father were extremely active, very physical. They were not intellectuals. They were not even remotely cultural. So my dream was always like, can't we go to Paris for spring break? And my dad was taking us on dove hunting trips in Mexico. Very different. Not even like the cool part of Ixtapa or Cancun. We were going to like the belly, the dusty, hot belly out of like Mexicali, basically. To hunt for doves? For doves, quail. My dad was a deer hunter. We would go on camping trips. I was like, what is up with like the pack, you know, the squeezable margarine and trout for breakfast? Like, like they don't I, do that in Paris. They don't do that in Paris. And my mom was not fashionable. She did not care about makeup or clothes or anything. And I was in her closet from a very early age, trying on like whatever clothes I could find, using her makeup, doing all these things. And I just remember her looking at me like I was an alien. And she had my hair cut into a boy's bowl cut for the first six years of my life. I wore my brother's hand-me-downs and I could not wait to escape this life. Like it felt very, very oppressive in a certain way. But I think that that was more, that had more to do with the fact that my family was one that was like all about action and physicality and very masculine energy. And I was super feminine energy. I was very emotional, very sensitive and did not have any outlet for that. So that like had ramifications later for me in my life. Isn't that the interesting thing though? It's like with kids is that we really come out as our own creations. Sometimes you can't tap it back to where your love for something came from. And you really seem to have felt, like you said, alien in your own family from the get-go where you're like, I'm not here for a long time. I can't wait to hightail it out, find my own calling and get away from these people that I don't feel like I have anything in common with. And that's what I love exploring is sort of, we create our own lives and we design the lives that fit us. And it sounds like right off the bat, you knew your existing family and life did not fit what you wanted for your own. 
Absolutely. But I will say that now that I am 47 years old and have gone through so many awakenings spiritually, et cetera, I realize, and I, and I firmly believe I chose that family. I chose those parents exactly because they would like push all my buttons, scratch all my wounds, and I would wake up because mm-hmm. there was so much to learn. You know, I wish that I had just come with like the chip of awareness and knowing what my sort of soul's journey was and what my potential on earth was. In fact, I did not. And I had to learn it the hard way. But I really see now that growing up in such a masculine environment was a clarion call for me to develop the feminine. And by that, I mean not being sexy and beautiful, but really because that's like a distorted feminine, exterior, superficial feminine. I'm really talking about the the interior feminine, like feminine energy, the qualities of compassion and mercy and nurturing and receptivity, openness, love in the face of chaos, relaxation, all of these things that, you know, I grew up as like a warrior. I'm like the type of person that will run onto the battlefield and be the first person with the sort of ax screaming against the opponent. And I grew up in a family like that. And it took a long time for me to kind of like break down all of that armor and reach my true feminine essence. So I feel like that's the journey. Although it sounds like you'd be the good person to have with you in an emergency. If you're prepared to run out onto the field with the axe, I'm going to want you in my corner. Totally. And I'm great at war. I got to tell okay. you, like, if, yeah, if you want to have a battle, like I'm, I'm great at it. I really have to say, you know, I'm sure I had past lives, like swinging the axe. I am not afraid of confrontation. I'm not afraid of saying no. I'm not afraid of setting rules, boundaries. And those are the benefits of positive masculine energy. So that's great. But when it becomes distorted and you start with the judgment and the criticizing and the separation and the punishment and all the other things that like masculine energy can do that are perceived or real physical violences or aggression, you know, there's a, there's a real special balance to be struck between the feminine and the masculine. So how did you transition from that little girl with the bowl cut <laughs> who wanted to live in Paris to eventually moving to Italy? Because you started your career in journalism, right? I did. But, you know, my very first career was advertising because I went to Berkeley. I moved to San Francisco after graduating and I knew I wanted fashion, but there was no fashion in California. I didn't know how to get to New York. My dream was to work at Seventeen Magazine. Mm -hmm. Didn't know how to do that. So what I did was I got a job at the closest creative environment that I could muster and think of, which was advertising. And in San Francisco in the late 90s, the ad agencies were super creative environments. There was a lot of great boutique agencies. And I worked for one that was a wonderful place called Hal Reine and Partners. And from there, I got a ticket to New York at another ad agency called Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners. And I'll never forget, I arrived there in like 1997, maybe. And everyone was 24 years old. They were like guys on skateboards. Everyone was like drinking beer in the agency. They all had like Prada sports slip on. Like this was in the late nineties. It was like radical. It was so cool. I couldn't believe it. And after a few months, they landed the Tommy Hilfiger account and I got put on it and I was 
thrilled. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And about a year later, a job came up at Calvin Klein. And so I left advertising and went in-house at Calvin and worked in marketing. When you got to that ad agency and you're describing the attitude and the culture, was it that feeling of like, I finally found my people. This is where I belong. Totally. It really was. Even though I was struggling at that point personally, I had had a depression in college when my my dad died and Mm -hmm. he had leukemia. And then what happened was it wasn't handled properly. Even though my mom sent me to like the best psychiatrist, the most expensive psychiatrist in San Francisco, you know, this woman just basically gave me Prozac and never dealt with the root issues of what was going on. And so that was the beginning of kind of this like lifelong, I would say, conflict with Western medicine and (laughs) which I today do not have a lot of faith in um, unless you need to like your appendix out or like a brain tumor that needs to be removed when it comes to anything that is energetically or emotionally based our Western medicine and scientific methods are like not in my experience what we need and so that was kind of like the first douse of that. And Mm -hmm. when I had moved to New York, which was probably six years after that first depression, it hit again. And I just kind of stopped eating and everyone was like, you're anorexic. And I'm like, I don't really think I'm anorexic, but like, I I just lost all interest in food. It was just a very, I I had a, a lot of rocky, rocky years in terms of my own mental health. But luckily I had this stamina, you know, from this family of warriors and surfers and volleyball players and champions. You know, I have to thank my family for instilling this sort of like tenacity of like holding on. I'm not going to let go, even though I want to kill myself. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm sure that that's something that so many people can relate to. But it sounds like from the description of your family that they were probably not too tapped into alternative methods for you to explore at that time. Right. Not at all. I mean, the fact that I even found yoga was like, whoa, what are you doing? Or, you know, I'll never forget when I first found my, my very first energy healer. And I told my mom and she, she thought I had like joined a cult. It was was hilarious. She was totally worried. (laughs) No concern for you taking a medicine, right? That you have to kind of like white knuckle until you find your dosage and whether or not that works for you and whether or not that's the right medicine. And that you're dumbed down until you are like a chewing cow, by the Mm way. Dumbed and dumbed. I mean, be very, 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 this is my message to anyone that deals with mental I love it that they call them mental illnesses. First of all, it's like not mental, it's emotional. (laughs) And it's not an illness. Uh, They're called negative emotions and you need to learn how to deal with them and recognize them as not yourself, but an information source. So, I mean, all, I mean, this literally took me like 35 years to learn and I was pissed off along the way. I was so angry that no one had ever shown me the way that, I mean, it really, I I like went down this road kicking and screaming, which is also another lesson uh, that I learned in Italy. When I moved to Italy, one of the greatest lessons I learned is go with the flow. Mm -hmm. If you kick and scream and insist and demand and try to control something, you will get slapped in the face. 
So um, this was a great, great lesson of uh, living in Italy. And I'm sorry I've derailed your line of questioning. No. I'm, I'm hopping around like a jackrabbit. That is totally fine. And I think it's such an important message because I think, you know, right now in 2020, conversation about normalization around even speaking about mental health issues is so much more prevalent. But I'm you're talking about 97, you know, and you're also in that flux stage of your life, becoming an adult, you've just lost your father, you're trying to figure out who you are, as we all are for the entirety of our journey, but you're not equipped at that point with some of the lessons that you've learned at this point in your life, you know, 20 years later. And you know, the crazy thing is that I think all of this personally, when I look back was masquerading my deep, empathic, and psychic gifts. And what mm-hmm. I'm realizing is that people who suffer from anxiety, depression, almost all of them have this sensitivity and they don't realize that they're picking up on thought forms, messages, etc., that are not even them yes. lots of times. And I will say that like growing up in my family, I didn't realize that I was like internalizing my parents emotions and dramas. And I thought that they were my own, but really it was them. And so it just took me a really long time to understand like the veil and the, Mm -hmm. and the boundary between like my own energy body and that of other people. Right. And to realize it was something that I actually could manage. Okay. So then you're at Calvin Klein, you're living in New York at this point. And I'm working in an all black and white environment and mm-hmm. I am dressed like a colorful clown every okay, day. Okay, so color, you've been drawn to color since the beginning. It's so Absolutely. funny too, JJ, because your world is so colorful and obviously I'm so drawn to everything in terms of your aesthetic and the world, even through your website. And it's so funny because obviously I love that too when I'm in Italy and I'm a total Italian file. And I did my DNA test and was dying for like a little bit of Italian heritage, nothing, of course. (laughs) I always say that my Real Housewives cold open is I may not be Italian, but I've got marinara running through my veins, you know, (laughs) should should they ever come calling. But here in Los Angeles, especially right now, it's like we're in this Scandi, beige, white, black, you know, this nude moment. And I think that that's what's so special and so exciting about what you're doing too, is that it's so bold and colorful. And so what you're saying is that this is not a new thing. This has been who you've been from the beginning. You were at Calvin Klein in the nineties, like as minimal as we could be. Totally. I have been besotted with color, sparkle, embellishment pattern since I could see and point So I've been a magpie and I never kind of understood that. I never thought about it very much until I started studying energy and realizing that colors have frequency. Mm -hmm. So different colors hold different energetics. And I am very drawn to that, very attracted to that and very activated. I get activated by color and print. I see a pattern or a print and my entire system lights up like I become Las Vegas. So I never really understood this. Uh, I just understood it as like when I was young, a deep love of fashion and those like really sophisticated moms that weren't my own and that they were wearing Gloria Vanderbilt tight jeans and like these really sexy 
printed blouses and like having their hair, like, you know, Farrah Fawcett. And then as I got a little bit older, when I moved to New York, I didn't have much money. I discovered the Chelsea flea market. And that for me was kind of like this seismic moment because it really became this like Aladdin's cave of discovery. And I, I recognized my passion for vintage in those mm -hmm. early years in New York when the vintage scene was so full and you could get the most amazing clothes and deals and and it was a very, very special time. And that's where the seeds of my vintage were really planted. So you started at Calvin Klein. And then when did you transition into writing, into editing? Well, what happened was I met an Italian while I was living in New York. He lived in Milan. We started a long distance relationship. And a year later, I, I left my job at Calvin and moved to Milan. And I did not have a job. I had tried to get a job remotely because the Italians don't do anything unless you're face to face with them. <laughs> I couldn't even get like a, you know, an interview. I couldn't get a telephone call, nothing. Do you speak Italian at this point? So I had taken a couple of lessons and, and, and the crazy thing was that before I met this Italian who later became my husband, I had started taking Italian lessons in New York two weeks earlier. So talk about like manifesting. I'd right. taken Italian courses, I meet an Italian, and then I moved to Milan. It was pretty funny. You didn't take French. No, I didn't take French, but, you know, I lived in France during uh, college. You did, okay. And, and they were really grumpy, mm -hmm. and they were really uptight. And I have to say, I did not fall in love with France. I mean, I lost my virginity to a Frenchman. It was a horrible experience. I stayed with this nasty French woman. <laughs> and, like, literally, okay. my entire experience was like, you know what? France is not that great. And this was a huge lesson to me because it's sort of like the parallels I draw to the fashion industry. Just because something looks really good doesn't mean it is. And moving to Italy, you know, I moved there and I was in chaos. I had no family, no friends, no job, no, job. no language, nothing. And these Italians could not have been nicer and more nurturing and more cool and more accepting. And the fact that I kept fucking up their language and they never once said, oh, no, don't, no, don't even speak the way the French would, you know, the French are like so critical and the Italian culture is the opposite. And I will say that like one of the greatest teachers I ever had in my life, you know, I've had amazing gurus and teachers, et cetera. But one of my teachers was Italy itself, who the culture, the people, the openness, the kindness, the warm heartedness, I mean, they're slow, they're disorganized. They don't know anything about service, but they know everything about love. And it was a huge lesson for me. Well, this feels like a scene out of Eat, Pray, Love when Julia Roberts goes there. And it feels like you had that similar awakening. So you're in your early 20s. You have no job. You've met a guy. So you go over and from an identity standpoint, were you wanting to continue in advertising? Were you just open to getting no, no. a job? I mean, or? I, at, at that point, I was 28 years old. So mm -hmm. I had started in advertising, moved to marketing at Calvin. I was trying to find a marketing job. It's just that in Italy at that time, the word marketing did not exist in any fashion company. And so they couldn't place me. And so I was really upset about this. Like I'm a type A person. I'd never not had a job in my entire life, learning to live in the void with the uncertainty. I, I mean, I wasn't even equipped for that. I was, mm -hmm. I was going to have another nervous breakdown, it felt like. And then I met a journalist at a fashion show party, I met a journalist 
He was the editor of the world's first online fashion news service called Fashion Wire Daily. Mm-hmm. He was looking for a stringer reporter, you know, and he was like, do you want to do like, it? I'm here. I barely know the language. Let's do it. I said, I'll do it. He goes, okay, write up this event. And I did. And, you know, I was a rhetoric major at Berkeley. It's, you know, I knew how to write. And that began my journalism career. Now, I started at the bottom of the barrel, but I was intrepid. I kept on it. And it turned out that no one was reading my journalism except one person. And the one person that was reading my articles was the most important person in fashion journalism, which is Susie Menkes, who's a historic- Yeah, huge. Exactly. And the only reason she was reading what I was writing was because Godfrey, my boss, and I were scooping her. We were coming out earlier than the International Herald Tribune. She didn't like that. Like, I would have to go up to Victoria Beckham in the front row and ask her what she ate for breakfast. I mean, that was like kind of like my job. What did she eat for breakfast? Anything good? No. Basically, she wasn't eating anything. (laughs) Right. I could have probably told you that. Yeah, yeah. She had coffee. Uh, But, you know, it it was an amazing job. I was was writing fashion show reviews. I was going to every press conference on every new museum opening. I did everything. I learned so much. And after a year, Susie Menkes hired me at the Herald Tribune. So I went from the lowest to the highest and like, you know, that that's such a lesson. Just stay the course and know that you're doing a good job and people will notice. I want to talk a little bit about how you started La Double J. And I know you don't consider yourself a traditional designer, but how that all came to be. And then through that and through the time that we're going through now, tell me about how did you transition from doing this into starting La Double J? Am I saying that right? Yeah, you sure did. You know, most people think it's French and they say like la double J. And I'm like, actually, it's la double J. (laughs) Right. So how did la double J start? So I ended up being a journalist for 15 years Mm -hmm. and I was on staff at Harper's Bazaar and the Wall Street Journal magazine and wallpaper and freelance for everyone. And I had this like wonderful, wonderful career. But I will say that towards the end of that, I would say like around 2010, 10, 2012, journalism really started to change. It was all based, I mean, first of all, at the beginning, when I when I first started, it was a very exclusive realm. You had mm-hmm. to qualify to enter. There was no blogging. There was no sort of like, I'll just start my own Instagram page and like see what happens. And it was very hierarchical and very patriarchal. Now it's totally different. Of course. At the beginning, it was like that, you know, and and I'm also like proud of myself for having sort of passed that velvet rope. It was very difficult. These magazines were becoming so formulaic. They were being driven by advertising dollars. I wanted to write about the creative women that I had met in Milan that just spiked my interest and like activated me, illuminated me. I had learned so much from these incredible creative women. They weren't advertisers. They were never going to be in the pages of Harper's Bazaar or Vogue UK or whoever else I was writing for. And on the other hand, I had this huge vintage collection that I, you know, from those days in the Chelsea market, I had like amassed this huge collection. And my husband at the time had opened about three or four years prior, an e-commerce company, 
where he helps put brands online and manages their business. And he suggested to me, he goes, I think you should sell your vintage jewelry online. And I was like, mm, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have clothes. And if mm -hmm. I have clothes and jewelry, I'm going to like make it a magazine and it's going to be about these women. And we're going to mix new clothes with old clothes. We're going to talk about them. And it's all going to be about like how to live like an Italian. Which is what I want to do. Exactly what everyone wants to do. How do they set their table? What kind of meals are they doing? How do they decorate their house? What their closet looks like? How are they shopping? I mean, these women were just remarkable. So the business started, I mean, I was like one person. Mm -hmm. I had two jobs working for the Wall Street Journal and Wallpaper in addition to founding this new company. And I had no full-time employees. I just literally had like a group of freelancers that I had to like wrangle to make this whole thing happen. And we launched and it was this huge hit. It was great. Like I, it was just like at the right moment, 2015. But I will say that, you know, after a year of that, you know, I sold my, my collection quite well, but quickly realized, you know, it had taken me 15 years to amass that. Right. And it's vintage, one of a kind, these pieces, right? They're all, and, and that becomes so difficult to keep the sourcing up, dealing with a fit issues, dealing with like, you know, quality, all this stuff. So again, my husband at the time was like, he, he's always like the business brain with whatever I do. And I'm so grateful to him. And he said to me, he's like, you know what? I think you should make new clothes with vintage patterns. And it turned out we had these family friends in Lake Como, the Mantero family, and they their family has been making silk in Lake Como for 120 years. And they're like the top supplier to the world's luxury goods companies. Like our, I go there, our silk is being printed next to Louis Vuitton, Gucci, and Christian Dior. And it's just- Say amazing. less, JJ, you had me at Lake Como. Oh, I'm just like envisioning, you know, this family run textile printing company with delicious silks. And then you go out and have lunch on the veranda. I think it's so interesting too. What you're saying is that this shift number one at 2015, you have, like you said, kind of gotten past the velvet rope of this world that you, you know, really wanted to be accepted as a part of, and you were. And then really, and then I it, realized it doesn't matter. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. Really, if you think about it, when the world was more exclusionary and when there was more of the hierarchy, we were really fed that that was the pinnacle, right? And it sounds like what you were experiencing was that, like you said, it looked beautiful, but maybe there was a lack of soul. Like it was just manufactured and we were seeing the same story over and over and people fatigued of that. And all of a sudden you want to bring attention to these vibrant, real women that you'd met, you know, who were doing cool things. And it took a while for traditional media to really get on board with that. But you were really at the forefront. And from a personal standpoint, too, it's like the universe was aligned for you to kind of step into what was your own real natural prowess and your own natural interest and talents of creating this and illuminating this world that you had found. And it all kind of worked out at the same time without so, not to say it wasn't, I'm sure there was a ton of effort, but that you were in your own way going with the flow that you had talked about before. Well, this I have to thank my first energy healer for, because the craziest part about this entire story is that from 2010 to 2014, I was 
furiously trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And this was wrecking my body, wrecking my brain, wrecking my heart. And I woke up in 2014 and I was like, fuck this. I am not doing this ever again. And the day I decided that, I went to lunch with a friend. She brought another friend I hadn't seen in 15 years. That friend told me about an energy healer. And I started with, I wrote to that energy healer on that day. And that woman changed my life. She opened my entire, because I had been really into yoga and meditation, but I had never been like on a true spiritual path. So in 2014, that's when my spiritual journey began. And this energy healer was focused on fertility. Mm -hmm. Nine months after working with her, I gave birth to my company. Wow. So, you know, JJ, I know that you shared through an article that you wrote for Goop, but for our listeners today who don't know about your struggle, obviously you went down the IVF path you got pregnant a few times, correct? And each time, was it three times? Correct. Okay, so the crazy thing was that I didn't have trouble getting pregnant because each time I did IVF, boom, got pregnant. And each time the baby was alive, mm -hmm. but chromosomically scrambled. Because they don't do genetic testing there or they what's- They do not allow genetic testing. Oh my God. And is this, is this a Catholic thing? I think so. Wow. Obviously, I'm sure this was such a wildly intense time for you. And then it's it's bringing up so much for me too, just thinking about everything we're going through, you know, right now in the you US and also in Poland yeah. in terms of women and rights to their bodies. And if there had been a way that you could have done testing to avoid having to go through this experience at it was at three months each time, right? So you carried those pregnancies for 12 weeks. I can't exactly. imagine what that was doing on your psyche and then the emotion of that and getting excited about potentially being pregnant and all of it, all while in another country. So it sounds like from what you shared with that story that, and I imagine this is the person that you, that you were referring to, that you learned about what fertility really meant in the true sense of the word, right? Beyond just our bodies and fertility, but what is fertility? And Exactly. And what that means is creating a fertile environment within yourself to allow your creations to grow and be expressed and to deliver them into the world. Basically, the fertile environment that I'm talking about is that feminine energy. And that is what I didn't have. I didn't have this softness towards myself. I didn't have this ability to stop and listen. I was a warrior. I was like chopping and running through life, never stopping to listen to my heart, to listen to my body, my cells that were talking. And that's not a fertile environment. I will say that I really believe also that fertility, there's so much to do about the energetic between you and your partner. And there was a lot that my husband and I had not addressed. And I'm positive because since then, you know, after I decided not to do IVF anymore, then that's like when I really shot my spiritual practice. And, and like over the last six years, things have just 
really gone on the up and up for me. And he really struggled at that point, you know, before he was the optimistic one, don't worry, it'll all work out, blah, 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 blah. And then when I was like, you know what, I'm not doing it anymore. And then I found this other avenue for myself. That's when he really started to suffer. And in terms of wanting kids or yeah. in terms of, he right? really wanted kids and, you know, he's Italian and he's, you know, he's so wonderful. He has such a, he would have been such a great father, but there were just so many different things. Like the two of us, like not being able to share the pain together, like grieving in different ways, finding like other uh, resources that weren't sort of aligned. We, you have to like grow through the pain together. Otherwise you're going to come out apart. And I really believe that's what happened. And I also believe that we were not conceiving because I was not fully expressed with my own feminine energy. I believe that all of my blocks were spiritual, energetic, and emotional. And that's really what my Goop article was about. Because, you know, doctor, that's why I'm saying like Western medicine, they don't even talk about that. They're like, you have unexplained fertility. I'm like, I do not. There is a very good reason why I'm not uh, getting pregnant. It has nothing to do with science. Obviously, listen, there there are the scientific and physical components to it. You know, people have various challenges, but I believe heavily in what you're saying that there is another element to it that perhaps, and it sounds like ultimately, maybe this union was not intended. And maybe there's a reason why that didn't end up becoming the yes. situation that you guys had hoped because ultimately it was not intended for you. So through that harrowing experience, you're also running your business, but you kind of discover this whole other component of your life, right? That opens up all these other avenues for you. And ultimately it seems like a little bit of what feels like a higher calling and purpose for your life. Where does that leave you right now on a practical level? What role do you currently occupy in the, in the company? Well, I like to say that I'm the chief spiritual officer because that's- That tracks, of, that tracks for me right now. <laughs> that's also sort of my dream, but but technically I'm the creative director and I oversee every element of creativity. And ironically, my ex-husband is my business partner and this is really the child that we were not able to have. And so we're able to parent this creation together and that's been a very rewarding and beautiful experience. So I'm like super proud that we were able to do that. And, you know, at the beginning I was alone on it. He wasn't really involved the first year, year and a half. But when we really started to like kickstart the business part of it and all the new product, and he's been instrumental in shepherding that. And so that's been remarkable. I will say it's very challenging having your own business and not having outside funding, not having an investor everything just feels so homemade and on your shoulders and immediate and like urgent and difficult. And so every day I've been starting to integrate what I've learned on my own spiritual journey with Double J and trying to like reach a broader community or extend that to our customers, because it's like, at the end of the day, do I really want to just like sell you a dress? No, I would much rather. I mean, the whole ethos of our company is I want to sell you joy and I want to inspire you to become a better, healthier, happier person. <laughs> and sometimes like 
a printed leopard. I love uh, that. Is that a turtleneck? It's a it turtleneck a... with matching pants. I mean, oh, sometimes I die for that. I love leopard. Sometimes you need that as your inspo of the day. Sometimes you might need a video on how to embrace your fear. Sometimes you might need what we did on Halloween, which was a webinar workshop on activating your inner witch switch and like what that even means. And so my whole dream, my goal is to open a retreat center in Italy. I'm dying to open one in Sicily, either on the mainland or on the island of Pantelleria and live there eventually and host retreats for women. And I see Double J as the kind of like platform for all of this and a stage in which we can reach a lot of people, but then have different forks and different prongs coming out of it, you know, like a sun with its rays doing different things. Oh, and it's the logistics and all this stuff that comes along with running a company. And did you feel equipped for that? And does it ever like, how do you keep your creative force? Is. Right. How do you keep your creative force when you're bogged down with bullshit? We all have only an arsenal of how much energy. So we have to define where we can distribute that. And sometimes with, you know, certain endeavors, it gets sucked down with all the joyless stuff. And I can see it in your face when you're talking about opening up this location in Sicily and that it's a dream of yours. And I didn't even realize it was a dream of mine until you just said it. And I want to go there too. But then, like you said, you know, we'll get off this call and you have to deal with the minutia. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly believe that's the spiritual practice. The spiritual practice is not when I'm in meditation. The spiritual practice is actually when the hotel screws you and overcharges you on 55 different things and like looking at them compassionately rather than like being the indignant American demanding service and demanding this and your rights and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Did you feel always spiritual, JJ? Was this something that you feel like you've discovered more just through this fertility journey? I think I was the least spiritual person on the planet. I grew up hating God, mm -hmm. hating the Catholic Church, thinking that I was an atheist. That's why when I met Elizabeth, my first energy healer, and she kept talking about God, I was like, can you stop saying that word? <laughs> what is it for you? Is it a power? Is it a presence? So for me, God is creator, mm -hmm. source, consciousness. So for me, there is a overreaching consciousness in mm -hmm. the universe that is a benevolent force. It is not a human being. It has nothing to do with religion. Uh, although I do think that many religions have tried to use their own rhetoric and their own stories to make sense of it. And I really believe that every religion is talking about the exact same thing, but we get so lost in the dogma and religion has become so rule-based and a way to control people. That for me is not a spiritual practice. A spiritual practice is recognizing that I have the divine within myself and it is my responsibility on this planet, in this lifetime, housed inside this body, to remember that I am a slice of the divine, hook up to that, activate it, 
start acting graciously when someone is pushing my buttons because that is the real test. And in that way, I hook up to that consciousness. So a few questions, because you're basically just in a, an energy field clad in a gorgeous leopard print pantsuit right now. <laughs> but so a couple of things. During this lockdown, it seems like that's the point in time that you decided to bring some of these teachings really more to the forefront of not only your your kind of personal life, but also as far as the business, right? Were you comfortable with sharing, doing this talking to camera stuff that you were doing? It feels like that you've just kind of introduced in the last few months. And what is the reception been like within your community? So for me, it's never been a problem. I will tell you anything that's happened to me. I don't have any secrets and I may have shame, but I'm weirdly like open about it. I, I don't know. It's, it's just like a, it's a, it's part of my cellular structure. So I myself, I'm happy to get on a, on a mountaintop to talk about all of this. I just assumed that nobody was interested. <laughs> and it was really funny because I had this editor working for me, Scarlett. She was amazing. And she said, JJ, I think that during lockdown, we should talk to our community of women because everyone is having such a hard time. You're doing all this stuff. Why don't you just start sharing it? And I was like, do you think they're interested? And she's like, yeah. And so I was like, okay. So I started just doing these videos and like, Suddenly we had like hundreds of people responding and I was receiving so many personal messages from women saying, you have no idea how much this means to me. You've made me think about this. I'm dying about this. What are you, you know, asking for advice, sharing their stories. So that was like a wonderful recognition. Experiment. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. And has it translated to increased sales? Not that that's your intent, but it's interesting just from a brand perspective, right? Like this period of time is when I think there's a lot of vacillation and people are figuring out how do we speak with our community without feeling like we're just trying to get them to buy things that they don't necessarily need right now. And you're doing so very organically. But I also think that through that, I would suspect there'd be an uptick because people want to buy into brands where there's an ethos they believe in, right? And it sounds like you've had such an outpouring from your community community and such a great reception that I would be curious if that didn't translate. Well, we don't have like the numbers of like, okay, this post and then, you know, cause mm -hmm. there's no like link to buy. Right. So it's more the fact that our followers have increased. Right. So that Visibility. is the greatest result because I want to grow this community so if we're talking about things, whether it's like the leopard pantsuit. And we're talking about it because I love it. Or we're talking about your etheric system in your astral body. Like I'm good either way. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I also love that because there's no bifurcation of your life. It sounds like that was before what you were doing in terms of that was your own personal practice. And not to say that you were hiding that, but you weren't sharing it with the community in the same way that you are now. And now your ultimate goal of creating this destination and this inspiration and this potential lifestyle for this community, it's all intertwined with what you're doing. It is. And now, you know, and I, it's so funny because during lockdown, I had so many spiritual downloads, activations. It was like a 
very creative and productive time for me spiritually. <laughs> and But then when I got out of lockdown, I was suddenly confronted with like the frenzy of everyday life. And this like threw me for a loop. I started like drinking a lot of wine, eating a lot of sugar, smoking cigarettes, which I hadn't smoked in so long. I started doing all these things that were like my kind of distractors. Yeah. Oh my God, like what's happening, you know? And, and, and I think also just trying to like reground myself, come back down to earth because I was like rising up and, you know, like literally (laughs) ascending. And right now I feel like the challenge is like, how do I just relax in this moment that is stressful? I'm telling you the energy is off the walls on a galactic level right now. The earth has increased her frequency. There are so many things happening that are invisible, that are impacting us. And we just have to kind of go with the flow. So for me, it's about really embodying these lessons that I know and I'm teaching and I want to be a channel for, and I'm not always embodying them. So that's just to say... Namaste. I understand your pain 100%. Like I'm, I'm in this shit like so deeply and I can't even always do it. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, the other day you put up a talk about being ready to resurrect. And I know that you've also introduced t-shirts that have a lot of these slogans, but something that really resonated with me about being, you know, ready for resurrection on a personal level was you were talking about that a lot of people are sort of like feathers. And, you know, this sounds like you two are going through all the same thing as everybody else. And we're all in this like wind cycle almost where you said it's like you're getting blown around by, you know, all the obligations, the societal obligations, the professional obligations, the family obligations. And we're so conditioned to do and to achieve and to check boxes. How do we take that time and really sit with what we want and define what that is and resurrect asking for a friend, JJ go. All right. So the the quick answer is read the story of the goddess Persephone, queen of the underworld. And this is something that is this is the one who was dragged down to the underworld, right? Against her underworld. She was like this, like, happy-go-lucky, naive, people-pleaser, and she got dragged down into the dark and left there. And what's amazing about Persephone was that that naivete, that sort of like good girl, means that you're very open, you're very receptive. So the fact that she was underground, in a ditch, probably raped, et cetera, but like opening to that pain and suffering and allowing herself to experience her true feelings, that's what heals you. And that's what gets you closest to your deepest desires and values. So Mm -hmm. long story short is go where the shadows are. Go find your darkness and sit with it and get it to talk. Because all of those super wounded, bruised, banged up parts of yourself are actually the jewels of your existence. And we're taught that these are the parts of ourselves that we need to reject, change, and immediately like move on from. And it's actually the opposite. So your pain 
is going to show you what you care most about. And the fact that you've just numbed it over means you'll never get in touch with the wisdom that it is underneath it. So we numb ourselves with the sugar and the alcohol. We numb ourselves with the exercise. We numb ourselves trying to control our bodies, trying to control our faces so we don't get older. There's so many things that we do that keep us unplugged. So the most important thing you need to do is regain feeling Mm -hmm. of what's called your soma. That's your body. That's your somatic experience. And you do this in meditation. You do this in yin yoga. You do this in pranayama breathing. You do this by gazing at the moon, watching sunsets. Literally, they're like epic energy activators. And you start listening. Your intuition, your womb, you must clear the womb if you're a woman. You do that through holotropic breathing, through ovarian breathing. A lot that gets dumped into your womb that keeps you from and I mean emotionally and energetically gets dumped into your womb. Think of all the abortions you had on projects, on relationships. Those are in your womb. And it's that death that hasn't been processed, hasn't been grieved, hasn't been fully and cleanly cut. We have to give honor to our own experience and especially the dark experience because that shadow part of you needs to get integrated with the light. You make this like amazing helix between dark and light, and then you put it back inside yourself rather than like light is over here and dark is over there and we hate the dark side. No. Do you think that's an American thing though? Because I'm interested from your perspective as an American living abroad, just in terms of our need for approval, our need for accomplishment, you know, even our definition of success, even our definition of, you know, this societal idea of having it all. And and I think we're all racing to have it all, be it all, do it all, all the time. And I'm curious if you feel in Italy, is that something that people even aspire to? Is, is your definition of success the same as when you got there? So in Italy, the definition of success is happiness. In America, the definition of success is is money money Mm -hmm. and a body that looks a certain way. Now, I will say the Italians are very concerned with beauty. So they're a little bit superficial, like from a, you know, aesthetic standpoint. But I would say that like, yes, there's a definitely more of an emphasis in America on some of these pursuits that are actually empty pursuits. But I I would say, I think it's more of like a Western society and civilization plague that's Mm -hmm. on us. We have to redefine and we have to reprogram ourselves. This begins from when we're children and your parents are trying to get you into the right kindergarten. Like that already is like the the anchor and the seed has been set. Like you better believe you got to get into the right high school and then you got to get into the right college and then you got to get the right job. I mean, come on. How many people do I know that did that track and were so successful and are miserable today? So many, you have no idea. Right. So they got it all. They got the husband and the money and the da 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 and the, you know, the plane rides and all this kind of stuff. It, this is not what we need. Those are perks. Those are accessories. Those are not your main meal. They're not your main outfit. <laughs> They're not your main source. What does the idea of having it all look like to you today? Oh my God. I think having it all is reaching 
a sense of love and acceptance of myself and other people. That is like number one for me because I know that my life becomes miserable when I don't feel that way. It really does. Whenever I go to judgment or criticism or punishment, which are American values, by the way, good and bad, right and wrong, let's put them in jail. Whenever I go there, my life is like a nightmare. So for me, the idea of success is like moving out of that paradigm and moving into one of genuine acceptance and compassion for my fellow human beings, but most of all for myself, because if I'm reacting to them, it's because I'm reacting to myself first. And then I would say the second thing for me that really feels, let's say, successful is reaching what I like to call, that I take from my spiritual practice, creator source consciousness. So that means that I become one with the creator. It means I become a creator and I am creating from this divine level. Mm -hmm. So that means my creations are of benefit to all of humanity, not just for me inside my house, inside my like, you know, perfect closet. That's not benefiting anyone except you. Creator source consciousness is like coming to the point where you are able to freely manifest the things that truly bring you joy and love and to share them. Well, I'm really looking forward to you sharing that love and joy with me on what's the island that we're on? Pantelleria. Let's go. Pantelleria. Okay. So let me ask you a few just silly fun questions. There's something that we do called the riff, and this could be something that could be, and listen, I have a feeling I know your practice, but it could be a product to practice, something that makes your life substantially easier, more efficient. It could be anything. Can I just be super superficial? The invention of Instagram changed my life. I was like by myself in Italy. I never saw anyone. (laughs) I was so excluded from all of my friends in America. Now I get like a constant stream of everything that they're doing. I'm so happy about that. Right. So I wonder for people who consider, especially right now in a period of time where everybody is sort of, you know, dispersing to the country or to other communities, people are want to get out of the city. And so much of that question is like, well, what about, you know, all of my friends, my community, do you feel like that satiates that need? No, that kind of like quick party, you know, that like kind of cocktail high and by kind of vibe, like you see them, it's superficial, but it kind of gives you that little bit of connection, right? Totally does. And you know what it is? It's a, it's a little flame. It's a little flicker. And then I think I just, again, I use this word a lot. I get activated by it. Like I'll see it and I'll be like, oh my God, I need to call them. We need to, so that my social life is not on, on Instagram. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit sick of it, but I will say that it's a wonderful like kick, nudge, elbow. It gets me thinking about things. And then it's up to me and, I, and I'm thankful for technology. Here we are talking on a Zoom call, recording this that then can go on YouTube or wherever uh, on your channels and reach thousands, hopefully, of people. Right, so, millions probably. Millions, and I <laughs> adore that. And the fact that, you know, and I lived for 10 years in Italy without having that kind of connectability. Is that a word? Connectivity. Yeah. Connectability, connectivity, of course. Connectivity. And so that I love. And now what we need to do, again, going back to like goals, let's be more responsible. 
with our technology so that we don't just create videos of ourselves getting dressed all day and create videos that actually connect to people and offer them something that can help them. Which is what you're doing 100%. I mean, I've been learning and I've been enjoying that. So I appreciate what you're doing and what you're sharing. I'm happy. Okay. And then, you know, we talk about having it all, but what have you had enough of lately? Polarizing politics. Yes. Let's just put it this way. I did not vote for Donald Trump, but I do not support people who are anti-Trump becoming violent, divisive, critical, judgmental, and punishing of others because you will never change the world that way. And I'm sick of this mentality in America that is, I'm right and they're wrong and they're bad and now I need to punish them. This is what I've had enough of along with the chocolate chip cookies. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and both will, um, will damage your body in different ways, right? Totally. So for anyone who doesn't follow along, where can they find you? Where can they shop La Double J? Where can they, where can they seek out your wisdom? Oh, you're so sweet. Okay. So you can find a lot of videos on my Instagram account, which is JJ Martin Milan. Then you can find some on the double J Instagram, L-A-double, the word J. And then you shop our clothes. We have our entire assortment of clothes and homeware on LaDoubleJ.com. Which is a visual splendor, by the way. Oh, thank you. We're so excited about that. JJ, I'm so excited to continue to watch this magnificent journey that you're on. And I really hope that you end up building that destination that you said, because I'm sure that there are a ton of people who would want to go there and to watch your travels from afar and be on your Italian journey. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. I'm so thankful. And thank you for the encouragement on that, because every time I hear someone who would be interested in it, who gets like motivated by it, that just gives me more inspiration to continue with that. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys, so please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week.